Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. podcast for quite a while. Um, As we know, going into the future, there's a lot of talk about hybrid and electrical vehicles and green energy. Um, It's kind of a topic that's piqued my interest, considering that we're having so much of this shoved down our throat. And um, we're being told that we have to go, you know, go green and use wind and solar, use hybrid batteries and different technologies to go into the future because of uh, climate change. Um, I'm not going to address too much of the climate change stuff in this podcast in particular. Um, I might do one in the future. Um, Alex Epstein is kind of the guy that I go to for a lot of that information because he seems to be able to pull all that stuff together. Um, I just haven't sat down and really looked into that all that much. So we're just not going to touch that too much. Like I said, just not enough knowledge there yet. But um, you could plan on me doing one in the future. Um, so I want to do one on the whole topic of green energy and perhaps how might or um, how inefficient it actually is when you start getting into some of this research and how some of the uh, proposed mechanisms and um, different sources of energy that we're going to use actually are worse for the environment than what you would think. Um, I think everybody's heard people say that a hybrid um, that a hybrid battery is a whole ton worse for the environment than the entire life cycle of a Hummer. Um, I tried to kind of find that. I couldn't find anything definitive, but um, I remember in automotive school, um, which in a previous podcast, I covered my history with automotive stuff and, you know, kind of how much, or, you know, how I learned everything I know in that field. Um, all my teachers have always had, including my teacher for my hybrids class. Um, God was incredibly smart. So, um, I would take his word for it, but um, I just don't want to say anything that I can't verifiably prove. So um, we're going to cover wind and solar, um, nickel metal hydride batteries, um, lithium cadmium batteries, lithium ion batteries, and kind of those technologies and um, kind of their life cycles, how they affect the environment, or how they affect the environment and, you know, how it actually looks and also um, energy prices and um, different sources of energy for different countries. So um, without further ado, let's start rock and rolling here. Go. OK, 
okay, so I have a kid's website here, just to kind of break it down in most simple terms. Um, I simply literally Googled, how does electricity get to your house? So um, they have a little breakdown here. Um, here's how electricity gets to your house. Electricity is made by generating, by made at a generating station by huge generators. Generating stations can use wind, coal, natural gas, or water. The current is sent through transformers to increase the voltage to push through the power long or push the power long distances. The electrical charge goes through high voltage transmission lines that stretch across the country. It reaches a substation where the voltage is lowered so it can be sent into smaller on small power lines. It travels through distribution lines to your neighborhood. Smaller transformers reduce the voltage again to make power safe to use in our homes. These smaller transformers may be mounted on the poles or sitting on the ground. They're the big green box is called the pad mount transformers. Um, connects to your house, passes through a meter that measures how much your family uses. The electricity goes to the service panel in your basement or garage where breakers or fuses protect the wires inside your house from being overloaded. Um, never touch the service panel is to be operated by your parents or a professional. Once again, it's a kid's website. <laughs> the electricity travels through the wires inside the walls, down outlets, and switches all over your house. Um, just to kind of go, go a little bit more deeper there. Um, when you have such high amperages, um, the way that it was explained to me in college, and I found this very, very useful, is that you got to think of amperage as the speed at which the um, the electricity is traveling and the voltage as the pressure. So um, when you have such high voltage traveling, traveling through these huge lines, you need a lot of line to transfer a lot of pressure and a lot of speed. So when that all that voltage and that amperage is coming to your house, you can't just run a straight power line right into your house or else you'll catch stuff on fire because the wires to power your lights, right? Your computer, your Xbox, your TV, whatever. Those wires are so much smaller. So if you put all that amperage or that voltage through that, it would catch fire. Now we use fuses in the fuse plant panel or the breaker panel, whatever, to um, keep that from happening, right? It's a uh, it's a safety device. That's what a fuse is. It's a safety device. It's meant to burn up and break the circuit before the component that that voltage and amperage is going to um, would catch fire. Um, it's the same way in vehicles. So just to kind of get everybody on the same page and kind of understand why we have fuses and stuff like that, um, circuit protection and why it's you have to have that kind of stuff or else you know, you'd be seeing a lot more fires. And let's say that stuff still can't happen. But um, you know, fuses are relatively reliable and cheap way to protect circuits. Um, so, kind of moving on here, um, electricity explained. Uh, electricity in the United States is produced, generated with diverse energy sources and technologies. Um, in this uh, website here, they just kind of break down where we get different energy sources and about rough percentages. Um, fossil fuels are the largest source of energy for electricity generation. Natural gas was the largest source, about 40% of US electricity generation in 2020. Natural gas is used in steam turbines and gas turbines to generate electricity. Coal was the third largest energy source for US electricity generation. At about 19%, nearly all coal-fired plants use steam turbines. A few coal-fired few coal -fired power plants convert coal to a gas to use in a gas turbine to generate electricity. Petroleum was the source of less than 1% of U.S. electricity generation in 2020. Residual fuel oil and petroleum coke is used in steam turbines. Distillate or diesel fuel oil is used in diesel engine generators. Residual fuel oil distillates and can also be burned in gas turbines. 
So here they just kind of have a little graph showing you all the uh, different energy sources. And as you can see from um, 1950 to 2020, we've drastically increased the amount of energy that we used. Um, in 1950, kind of read through this, I probably should have looked at this before I did the show, but um, just so everybody um, that's listening can hear, back in 1950, 155 billion kilowatt hours was used of um, coal, 45 billion kilowatt hours was used with natural gas, zero billion kilowatt hours was used by nuclear, um, 101 billion kilowatt hours from the renewables, and uh, petroleum and other was 34 billion kilowatt hours. Fast forward to 2020, we'll look at some of these numbers here. Coal was 774 billion kilowatt hours. Natural gas was 1,617 billion kilowatt hours. Nuclear was 790 billion kilowatt hours. Renewables, 792 billion kilowatt hours. Petroleum and other was 36 billion kilowatt hours. Um, it's just kind of once again breaking down the different energy sources that we've used since the 50s all the way to you know 2020. Um, right here, I'm a big advocate of nuclear. There's um, still a lot that I need to learn about it. But from what I understand, it's a very, very safe source of energy, very reliable as well. Um, the reason why that is is because nuclear is so dense, right? When you think about it of, in terms of calories, right? Um, whatever it takes to raise the temperature of I can't even remember what that is, but um, oil is a very dense source of calories. So when you think about like olive oil, butters, um, different kinds of vegetable oils, let's say, um, to get a gram of that, right, is a very, very small amount, but it's very, very dense and very high in calories. So it's a lot of energy without a lot of space. When it comes to, you know, fossil fuels or generating energy for machines, that's why they use oil and fossil fuels because it's very, very dense. Um, just a little side tangent, but when it comes to consuming foods, you want to avoid eating a lot of oils because they're very calorically dense and they don't provide a lot of satiation. It's a lot of energy in a very, very small amount of space. Um, hopefully that makes sense to everybody, but um, just kind of a useful way to think about energy and calories. Um, nuclear energy provides one-fifth of U.S. electricity. Nuclear energy was a source of about 20% of U.S. electricity generation in 2020. Nuclear power plants use steam turbines to produce electricity for nuclear fission. Renewable energy sources provide an increasing share of U.S. electricity. Many renewable energy sources are used to generate electricity more than the source of about 20% of total U.S. Um, electricity generation. Um, as you can see here in this little graph, back in the 50s, wind and solar really weren't used all that much. And then now, as you can see over time, it's um, greatly increasing in wind and solar um, wind is 337.51 billion kilowatt hours and solar is 90.89 billion kilowatt hours. Um, those are the two kind of big names in this whole renewable and green energy things or green energy pushes, if you will. Um, so once again, this is just kind of a little breakdown. Uh, all the websites are always in the show notes, so I'll make sure I post this in there just for everybody to see. But um, that's kind of given a little breakdown here in the U.S. of where our energy comes from and, you know, how many kilowatt hours, and different percentages, just how much we use as a country. So we're going to move on here and see the top 15 wind and solar power countries in 2020. Um, obviously, it's a little dated. It's 2022 at this point. 
So it's two years old, but this is all the data that I could find. And I'm sure it's probably not much different within two years, especially since you got COVID going around. I'm sure there's not as many people looking to change, you know. Um, Ember's recent global electricity review revealed that wind and solar produced 2,435 terawatts of electricity in 2020, providing almost a tenth of the world's electricity. Wind and solar have doubled since 2015, when they generated about 5% of the world's electricity. Some of the countries are generating significantly more electricity from wind and solar. The global leaders are Denmark and Uruguay, which generated 61% and 44% of their electricity from wind and solar in 2020. Um, just so we can see here, 61% of um, Denmark's energy comes from wind and solar. Um, we're going to do a little bit more of a deep dive on that here um, in a minute, but I just kind of want everybody to see, um, you know, who's the most prominent in this. Um, Germany's up there as well. You see about 33%. And as I said earlier, Uruguay is 44%. Ireland's 35%. Excuse me, we're not going to talk about that too much, but um, mostly about Denmark and how it compares to us. Um, it, it's pretty interesting. Wind and solar's global presence. Many countries now get around a tenth of their electricity, the global average from wind and solar. India is 9%, China 9.5%, Japan 10%, Brazil 11%, the US is 12%, and Turkey 12%. Um, I have a little, little long thing highlighted here. Yep, Denmark, all the way across the globe, 2020, 60.6% .6 wind and solar share. It's where the U.S. is 11.6% of the um, wind and solar share. Um, so what does this mean? And, you know, why should we really care about this? And who does the most kind of green and renewable source of electricity? And, you know, is it reliable? Is it cheap? should we do this going forward? Um, I like to throw it back to Alex Epstein. Um, we need to look at energy and different technologies in sources of human flourishing, as in what can we do to generate the most amount of human prosperity to allow people to do other things, right? Because if you're not worried about your basic needs, your energy, your food, um, your overall health, then you're free to do other things. If we look at this in like a market sense, right? If you're not busy just fighting to survive or fighting to pay your bills, then you're freed up to do other things that can bring more human flourishing and we can make people's lives better through um, different means. If once again, we're not just consumed with having to, uh, you know, worry about our basic survival and how we're gonna pay for our bills. Um, so here are globalpetrolprices.com. Um, Denmark electricity prices, we're going to discuss the price differences between the U.S. and um, Denmark. So um, household per kilowatt hour averages out to about 0.336 um, kilowatt per hour and businesses are 0.226 and um, Denmark is uh, a little bit higher, just a little. <laughs> Denmark, June of 2021, the price of electricity is 0.336 US dollar per kilowatt hour for households and 0.226 US dollar for businesses, which includes all components of the electricity bill, such as the cost of power, distribution, and taxes. For comparison, the average price of electricity in the world for that period is about 0.138 US dollar per kilowatt hour for households and 0.126 dollars for businesses. We calculate, calculate several data points at various levels of electricity consumption 
for both households and businesses, but on the chart, we show only two data points for households that displayed numbers calculated at the average annual level of household electricity consumption. For businesses, display data point uses per million kilowatt hour annual consumption. Um, so we're going to go down to this little graph here. We could see once again, oh God, let me just like find the freaking needle in haystack trying to find this UX was. And my dog just burst in. What's up, buddy? Um, the US 0.153 um, for US dollar per um, kilowatt hour in June of 2021. So the data, it, it's a little bit dated, but it's still relatively, um, I would say it probably hasn't changed much. I mean, obviously there's inflation and that kind of, you know, buffers things out a little bit, but you can kind of take this with a grain of salt. So we have a lot less green um, energy than Denmark does, but as you can see our energy price is significantly lower. Um, so once again, 0.153 US dollar per kilowatt hour. And then we go the whole way down here to Denmark and they're 0.336 um, per kilo or uh, dollar per kilowatt hour. So that is literally over double the energy price to have green and um, you know, wind and solar energy sources to supply your energy to your country. So that's all fine and dandy. And I'm sure some people may not mind paying higher energy prices for, you know, if they think they're better at the planet, but, um, you know, nothing necessarily happens in a vacuum because there's different things. Once again, if you're more worried about spending money on electricity and, you know, the reliability of your electricity, then you're not free to do other things. We can create more human flourishing if we're able to, uh, you know, give services and goods to people cheaper. So um, if they're using 66% of their energy comes from wind and solar, well, then that kind of, in my opinion, begs the question, well, how reliable is this energy? Because if you're not using wind or solar, then you have to use something that's more reliable, right? Like <laughs> fossil fuels, um, nuclear or whatever, whatever other energy source that proves to be more reliable. So we use, once again, a lot of natural gas for energy. So from generac.com, which, okay, you could say bias, but whatever. Um, natural gas, over enough for over 100 years. So the natural gas utility is historically very reliable with very few outages. Several recent studies conclude that the reliability of the utility of natural gas for supply will continue to increase due to unconventional gas supply pipeline expansion improvements and operations. On-site diesel storage can provide 24 to 72 hours of runtime, refueling via truck dependent on availability of fuel and infrastructure following an event, weather crisis, um, or trucker strike. <laughs> um, natural gas pipeline can provide weeks to months of fuel. Biofuel generators, diesel and natural gas extend runtimes from days to weeks by supplementing on-site fuel storage with natural gas. MIT study for improving energy security recommend the use of natural gas and biofuel generators for defense facilities. Natural gas pipeline network is robust. Historic outages are few. And unlike diesel, natural gas has no fuel maintenance issues. Um, so just, uh, they have a little bit of articles here. Like I said, I'll put that stuff in the show notes just in case people are curious and kind of want to breeze through that. Um, so here we're going to talk about the overall reliability of these energies, because if we're going to be using these, then obviously you want reliable, stable energy that, um, you know, you can use, because if you don't have energy, 
well, you know, shit goes bad. <laughs> Your food goes bad. You'll be cold. Life is rough, right? People who don't have easily available access to energy, you're not going to flourish as much as you would if you had more readily available access to energy. So um, this is a study from nature.com. And um, we're going to just kind of breeze over some of the stuff here in the study. And I think it's going to surprise a lot of people with just how unreliable and um, yeah, just, just kind of the stuff that's out there about this. Um, geophysical constraints on the reliability of solar and wind power worldwide. Um, read the abstract and a little bit of the uh, introduction. We'll just kind of keep rolling. If future net zero emissions energy systems rely heavily on solar and wind resources, spatial and temporal mismatches between resource availability and electricity, demand may challenge system reliability. Using 39 years of hourly reanalysis data, 1980 to 2018, we analyzed the ability of solar and wind resources to meet electricity demands in 42 countries, varying the hypothetical scale and mix of renewable generation as well as energy storage capacity. Assuming perfect transmission and annual generation equal to annual demand, but no energy storage, we find the most reliable renewable electricity systems are wind heavy and satisfy countries' electricity demand in 72 to 91% of hours, 83 to 94% by adding 12 hours of storage. Yet even in systems which meet 90% of demand, hundreds of hours of unmet demand may occur annually. Our analysis helps quantify the power energy and utilization rates of additional energy storage, demand management or curtailment, as well as the benefits of regional aggregation. So as you can see here, they're already kind of alluding to the fact that you're almost grasping at straws because right now our, our, um, our energy is so reliable that we have very, very few outages. Um, I don't know about that whole deal in Texas. Um, that's something perhaps I should read up on a little bit more, but um, we're going to break down as to why um, wind and solar aren't as reliable and perhaps we should shift our focus elsewhere because, you know, once again, as they said right here, um, with 12 hours of storage, um, you're at 94%. And that's, once again, by adding 12 hours of storage and how are you going to be able to do this? You need these enormous cells in order to store this kind of energy. Um, so stabilizing mean global temperatures requires a global transition to energy systems with near zero or net negative carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. In cost-optimized scenarios that accomplish this transition, solar and wind resources often supply a large share um, of electricity. Designing and operating a highly reliable electricity system that is dependent on such large shares of wind and solar generation can be a challenge, however, due to the variable uncertain nature of solar and wind resources. So they're kind of saying here that you got to think about weather, right? Because in areas like here in Pennsylvania, where we have lots of snow and ice in the winter months, um, these wind and solar um, sources of energy are not going to be as reliable because you don't have the sun quite as much and you're not going to have as much wind. The turbines could freeze. Um, these solar panels really don't suck up as much energy as you would kind of hope. Um, the efficacy of meeting electricity demands with generation from solar and wind resources depends on factors such as location and weather, the area over which generating assets are distributed, and the mix and magnitude of solar and wind generation capacities, the availability of energy storage and firm generation capacity. Meanwhile, reliability standards in industrialized countries typically are very high. Um, and they say right here, targeting two or three hours of 
unplanned outages per year are 99.97%. That's almost 100% reliability with the current energy model. Um, and once again, they'd be asking you to take a hit on that down to 94% at very best. And you know that the government will get involved. So we should probably err on the side of, you know, being a lot less reliable on that lower end. Um, resource adequacy planning for standards of one in 10 are also high in North American generating resources must be adequate to provide no more than one day of unmet electricity demand, or in some cases, one loss of load event in 10 years. An example, 99.97% or 99.9% respectively. Um, we're not going to read this whole paper. It's just going to kind of breeze through some stuff to give um, you a little bit more information. Um, this will be in the show notes if you want to read it. I read through a majority of it. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's just like brain melting. Um, here we present a systematic analysis of the ability of specified amounts of solar and wind generation to meet electricity demands in 42 major countries across a range of assumptions associated with transmission, energy storage, and generation amounts. In particular, we assess spatial and temporal gaps between electricity demand and availability of solar and wind resources, which present, represents gaps that must be filled by other non-emitting generation technologies or operating strategies and reliable electricity systems based on zero, carb, zero carbon resources. The complementarity, Jesus, that's a big word, <laughs> of renewable energy sources for this study is defined as hybridization of solar wind resources over a given area here, countries, which we estimate the Kendall correlation coefficient of these resources across 39 years of resource data. Um, our goal is to identify the opportunities, complementarity, and challenges of variable renewable resources in greater detail that can, or than can be done by integrated assessment models that have multi-year time steps. Our results do not account for realistic power system specifications. Rather, we examine fundamental geophysical constraints on wind and solar dominated power systems independent of cost estimates. Um, we do not need to suggest that the temporal variability of such resources would ever make it physically impossible to meet a given electricity demand with enough capacity the solar and wind resources would be able to meet demand, but rather the extent of which such variability may determine the economic or socio-political feasibility of reliable systems. Our results thus will continue to be informative even as technological and socio-political feasibility evolves. Um, so kind of breezing through here, here's the results. Um, go through some graphs. Um, once again, you guys can kind of dive into that if you want. I kind of want to get into the meat of where they break down the reliability of these um, different, excuse me, different energy sources. The most, the most reliable generation systems right here. Um, the colors in figure two show the reliability of electricity systems, the average percentage of electricity demand that is met each year from 1980 to 2018 based on only solar and wind resources for 18 major countries, four of each from Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Americas, and two from Oceania, horizontal axles of each panel, according to the mix of solar and wind generations, low annual generation relative to annual demand, um, and the capacity of energy storage relative to the mean electricity demand. Results for 24 other countries are shown in the supplementary figure three, supplementary data, Figure 2A shows that without any excess annual generation energy storage, assuming perfect national transmission, which we know nothing is ever perfect, the most reliable mixes of solar and wind generation could potentially meet 72 to 91%, an average of 83% of 
of electricity demand in these countries. Under these generation storage assumptions, the most reliable solar and wind generation mixes from 65 to 85% wind power, 73% on average with countries with substantial desert like Algeria, Egypt, South Africa, favoring slightly more solar and less wind, 65 to 70% wind with higher latitude countries like Russia and Canada favoring more wind. So once again, these are different geophysical restraints on kind of what wind and solar can do because you know Canada and Russia they get colder where if you go to countries like Africa or um, countries in Africa um, those may not be as favorable um, different graphs here um, that um, adding three hours of energy storage but still without excess annual generation increased the reliability so that the most reliable mixes meet 78 to 93 percent average an average of 87% of electricity demand. So as you can see, the average with three hours of energy storage is 87%. If you add um, three hours of storage, which is only up about 4% on average, it's better, but it's not quite what you would hope as to our current energy, which is about 99.97% reliable. You're taking quite a hit there when you go to these energy sources. Um, the share of solar generation in these most reliable mixes increases to 15 to 50%, 36% on average. Um, however, the share of solar generation increases less or even decreases in higher latitude countries like Russia, Canada, and Germany. These trends tend to continue as more storage is added, so that with 12 hours of energy storage and no excess annual, annual generation, 83 to 94%, an average of 94% of electricity demand is met with mixes of 10 to 70% solar power and 40 9% on average. If generating capacities are instead increased so that annual generation exceeds annual demand in each country by 50%, but without energy storage, the most reliable mixes meet 83 to 99%, an average of 94% of electricity demand. 1.5 times generation most reliable mix are substantially more reliable than one times generation systems built, but include more wind, 70 to 90% wind power, 78 on average. Uh, these overbuilt systems are more reliable in all of these 18 countries than the systems with 12 hours of energy storage, but no excess generation. Adding energy storage systems whose generation is 1.5 times annual demand, again, increases both the system's reliability, 89 to 100%, average 98%, and the share of solar generation most reliable mixes have 10 to 60% solar and 36% on average. Um, so basically what they're saying is that you would have to have a very, very large surplus of energy generated from these systems in order to um, meet the demand. Um, as you can see, these are incredibly optimistic um, standards that they're hoping to meet because as we know, nothing ever is 100% efficient. And on top of that, it would be, um, you would need to add insane amounts of storage, which require a lot of space to store said energy from relatively unreliable energy sources. Um, the unmet demand, the scatter plots in figure three show the relationships among reliability, energy storage, excess annual generation, and country's land area for the most reliable solar wind mixes of all 42 countries annualized. Um, the linear fits in each panel show that solar wind systems are generally less reliable in countries with smaller land areas. Specifically, our results across countries indicate the reliability of solar wind systems that lack energy storage increases by 7.2% for every factor of 10 increase in land area. This relationship further suggests that the improvement in reliability 
that might be expected by expanding transmission systems within large countries. However, excess annual generation tends to alleviate the disadvantage of small country area more than energy storage. Um, this could be seen by comparison or by comparing the slopes of uh, of the just lost my place of linear fits and panels, Figure Three C and D. In addition, within each country, to compare the gains in reliability from excess annual generation and energy storage, a nonlinear function was fit to the reliability given the land area, the level of annual generation, and the capacity of energy storage. Um, our results indicate that a 10% increase in excess annual generation is equivalent to 3.9 hours of energy storage, which you can see that only increased the overall reliability by about 4%. Um, let's keep reading through here. Figure three also points to the natures of systems unreliability. The color of bubbles indicates the average number of events, which are be unmet demand at least 24 contingu uh, contiguous hours i.e. long duration gaps. And systems that meet 95% of a country's demand, countries of such long duration gaps often re remain each year. Um, in some countries, excess annual generation reduced the number of such long duration gaps by adding 12 hours of energy storage. Um, they want you to compare Sweden, Australia, and Russia. Um, Figure four further characterized the magnitude and duration of unmet demand in 16 major countries, um, and they remove African countries for figure 18 for um, symmetry, with curves showing gaps of different system configurations ordered by their magnitude and according to the number of hours each year that such a gap occurred. Um, for example, the pale people's curve or the pale purple curves show that systems with no excess annual generation and 12 hours of energy storage consistently have gaps in which 50% of the demand is unmet for 1,000 hours per year. Pale green curves show that systems with 50% of excess annual generation and 12 hours of energy storage may have much smaller and shorter gaps in some countries. Let's just kind of keep rolling through here. Um, talk about the benefits of sharing resources, which brings up different arguments, you know, people about free trade tariffs. Um, our results suggest that neglecting transmission constraints with systems sized to meet time integrated annual electricity demand in major countries, solar and wind resources could meet at least 72% of instantaneous electricity demand without excess annual generation or energy storage. For instance, the contiguous U.S. A solar wind power system could provide 80% of total, 85% of total electricity demand, which is consistent with the prior studies and reports. Solar and wind resources can achieve greater levels of reliability by adding energy storage, increasing deployed capacities, um, or pulling resources to contiguous multinational regions. However, the marginal improvements in reliability related to these options differ considerably across countries and regions according to their land area and geophysical resources. Um, I know that's a whole lot and it's a pretty deep dive, but um, as you can see, these, you know, as they dive more and more in on these different energy sources, you need to have a lot of storage and it, it's just not nearly as reliable as our current energy systems. And this all depends on kind of how you're looking at the overall goal for energy. So if you want to protect the environment, right, if we don't know how much is going to change the environment and how much we've really had an impact on the environment, um, you have to deal with quite a bit of energy outage and you're going to have to use more reliable um, ways of sourcing your energy, which comes from natural gas. Um, 
I don't think it's appropriate to say that we should go all in on wind and solar when, as we can see, um, they're just not nearly as reliable and you need to have substantial amounts of energy storage. And then even then you're still not any, you're still about 5% off of having the same reliability that we have now, because I'm sure everyone can attest. Yeah, you have power outages, but they never last that long. That's because we have very, very reliable energy right now. Now, if you have wind and solar, you're going to have to store that energy by yourself and you're going to have to take up a lot of space with said cells or whatever can hold that energy versus now where you just deal with an outage very, very rarely. And it's usually a couple hours at most. Um, so kind of moving on from here, I want to talk about electric vehicles and kind of their effect on the environment. Um, so this is from E and E News. Um, talking about electric vehicle sales. Um, electric vehicle sales have doubled. Is a tidal wave coming? Uh, don't think so. <laughs> uh, they make up about 2% of market share. And that was a couple of years ago that I heard that. Um, I don't want to read through all this because it's going to bore everybody more than you're probably already bored out of your mind. Um, electrical vehicle sales are booming in the U.S. with purchases nearly doubling over a year ago. That trend is chipping away at the long-held narrative that drivers aren't ready for electric cars. It's leading to some analysis to recalibrate their predictions. Um, last year, electric vehicles accounted for 2% of all car sales. This summer, that number nearly jumped to 5% of light-duty vehicles like SUVs, sedans, and more than 20% of all passenger vehicle sales, according to the recent data. Um, however, higher adoption of EVs could stall without stronger federal and state policies, advocates warn, hampering President Biden's goal of decarbonizing the sector by mid-century. Still, the recent uptick in sales is notable, stemming in part from a proliferation of vehicle models across manufacturers, increased consumer awareness, and government support. Electric vehicle sales are pretty much going gangbusters, said Ryan Gallatin, a policy director at Advanced Energy Economy. You see automakers moving to start building EV on the assembly plants and announcing these new battery manufacturing facilities. It says they're betting their business on electric vehicles. I uh, won't read through all this, but um, I can honestly say in my personal life as a automotive technician, I really do not see that many people buying electric vehicles. And I really don't see that many in my shop. Um, to kind of give a tip of my hat to them, they are pretty reliable. Honestly, in my opinion, hybrid vehicles are incredibly reliable. Um, I don't work on them all that much. They don't really seem to break. The hybrid systems in them are pretty damn bulletproof to be completely honest. Um, in my entire career, which spans about 10 years, I really have not seen that many people tearing into hybrids. Um, I think I had one guy I had to rip into one once, but that was actually due to an accident. We didn't have gloves, um, the regulations surrounding hybrid gear and how it has to be maintained is uh, pretty, pretty ridiculous. So um, we're going to dive into a study here, comparative life cycles and environmental, environmental impact analysis of lithium iron um, and nickel metal hydride batteries. Um, so what's the difference between these two? Lithium ion is mostly used in like, you know, your AA, AAA, whatever. I'm sure you see them all over the grocery store where it says lithium ion. Nickel metal hydride batteries are the batteries that are actually mainly used in hybrid vehicles. So um, why is this important? Well, if we're going to be using all these hybrids to supposedly improve the environment, then we should know, are these batteries themselves affecting the environment and how are they doing that? 
and maybe we should consider, should we consider other kinds of batteries? Read the abstract here and we'll uh, kind of dive in to the science relating around these batteries and kind of get a better hold on what should we advocate for going forward. Um, so the abstract here says batteries have been extensively used in many applications. However, very little is explored regarding the possible environmental impacts for their whole life cycle. Even though a lot of studies have been carried out for augmenting performance in many ways, this research paper addresses the environmental effects of two different types of batteries, lithium ion and nickel metal hydride batteries in terms of their chemical constituents. Life cycle impact analysis has been carried out by CML, which is the Institute of Environmental Sciences. I had to look that up like a million times because I kept forgetting what it meant. I couldn't find what um, CML meant, but uh, it, apparently it's just the Institute of Environmental Sciences. Um, the recipe EcoPoints 97 IPCC and CEB methods. The impacts are considered in categories such as global warming, eutrophication, freshwater aquatic ecotoxicity, human toxicity, marine aquatic ecotoxicity, and terrestrial ecotoxicity. The results reveal their significant environmental impact caused by nickel metal hydride batteries in comparison with lithium ion batteries. The reason behind these impacts is a relatively large amount of toxic chemical elements which are present in the constituents of nickel metal hydride batteries. It could be anticipated that a better environmental performance um, can be achieved through optimization, especially by cautiously picking the constituents, taking into account toxicity aspects, and by minimizing the impacts related to these chemicals. Um, so an introduction here real quick. Um, batteries are important to run the modern world, providing energy for sectors and products from large-scale industries to electric vehicles and the smallest electronic items. They're ubiquitous backup to retain uninterpreted supply of power. Batteries can be classified as non-rechargeable primary batteries or rechargeable secondary batteries. Lithium ion and nickel metal hydride batteries are popular rechargeable batteries among many more. Nowadays, use for rechargeable batteries is increased due to the more popular portable electronics and sensors such as mobile phones, cameras, electric vehicles, moreover, the internet of things or the yeah, internet of things relies mostly on batteries for autonomous power supplies. Less the total power capacity of batteries was 800 milliwatt in um, 2014, up to 4,000 milliwatt by 2022. The increased usage implies the expansion of end-of-life disposal of the exhaust batteries. These batteries contain cadmium, lead, mercury, copper, zinc, manganese, lithium, or potassium, which are extremely hazardous to the environment regarding toxicity and human health effects. These chemicals are unhygienic and can affect the environment severely. Therefore, it is essential to quantify the possible environmental impacts of the whole life cycle of lithium ion nickel metal hydride batteries to save the environment and to guide policymakers and researchers. Um, the life cycle assessment of environmental hazards from lithium ion nickel metal hydride batteries is not an easy task as it considers effects from raw material extraction to battery manufacturing to end of life recycling batteries. It is necessary to do a vast literature review on the life cycle of lithium ion nickel metal hydride batteries to find out dangerous emissions over their entire life. The identification and estimation of various kinds of releases various kinds of releases to air and land for various constituents and energy consumptions during the battery's lifetime is critical. Moreover, it's necessary to use the appropriate state-of-the-art methods for calculating and comparing the effects. So basically, they're just saying that they're going to assess these different batteries' um, life cycle, which is something you don't really often hear. You hear 
um, people talk about the life cycles of cows and supposedly how it's so bad for the environment. That's a whole other show, and you know. Um, but these batteries, nickel metal hydride batteries, which are the most you know dominant batteries in hybrid vehicles, are um, are um, very very bad for the environment, as we're going to see. Um, so right here in a little graph, you can see they have lead acid batteries, which are kind of like the batteries that are mostly in vehicles now. Um, they have absorbed glass mat, which are kind of different, but um, lead acid batteries are obviously the, um, sorry, the most popular one. Um, lithium ion has increased quite a bit. Um, nickel, or, uh, yeah, nickel cadmium has gone quite down from um, 1995. Sorry, I should have prefaced that with this graph is from 1995 to 2015. And uh, we have a slight increase in nickel metal hydride because once again, we have more and more hydro vehicles since 1995, obviously. <laughs> um, keep scrolling on here. We'll find, um, you'd be surprised the difference in the actual impact that these batteries have on the environment. So we get all the way down here. Once again, I will have this study here in the show notes. Um, so this is a comparative um, inputs and outputs of lithium ion and nickel metal hydride batteries. Um, you can just see on this graph, the inputs from nature, outputs to air, outputs to water, outputs to soil, and outputs to solid waste. Um, the only area where um, your uh, lithium ion batteries are worse for um, overall is outputs to solid waste. So inputs from nature for lithium ion are very, very little. And, you know, you could see on this chart here for those listening, the uh, chart is it's the nickel metal hydride batteries are exponentially, um, they require exponentially more inputs from nature to be made than lithium ion. Um, the outputs to air, the nickel metal hydride is about twice that of lithium ion batteries. So they're about twice as bad for the air. You get outputs to water, they're almost four times worse for the water than lithium ion batteries are and outputs to soil. It's about the same deal, about you know three times worse for the soil than outputs to soil. So you can see this stuff's really not that good for the environment. Um, rolling here, or actually, you know what, we'll read from this real quick. The results obtained from the CML method show a comparative analysis between nickel metal hydride and lithium ion batteries are based on 10 impact categories. Um, according to the analysis results presented in figure nine, nickel metal hydride batteries have significant impact on global warming, human toxicity, marine aquatic ecotoxicity, and acidification. So comparative results are presented herein as percentages. It is evident that nickel metal hydride contributes nearly 100% for most categories where lithium ion contributes much less. Lithium ion batteries have a significant impact on global warming, um, 40%, human toxicity, 45%, marine aquatic ecotoxicity, 83%, and eutrophication, 68%. Table five, so the global warming value is 7.3 kilograms for CO2 equivalent and lithium ion is about 1.9 by 10 from nickel metal hydride batteries. The human toxicity value from lithium ion batteries, 7.38 kilograms. Um, I won't continue reading that because that'll just make everybody's head spin. But, um, you know, just you keep rolling through this stuff and it doesn't look good for nickel metal hydride batteries. Um, another graph, you can see all of the um, effects of nickel metal hydride batteries are very, very bad. I mean, even it's 
it's exponentially worse than lithium ion batteries. Um, and the recipe method here, uh, based on endpoint indicators utilized here for conducting LCA analysis of two different types of batteries, the analysis results of figure 10 show significantly higher results for nickel metal hydride batteries. As results, percentage values here, um, the impact on ecosystems and human health from nickel metal hydride batteries are nearly 100%, whereas from lithium ion batteries, the impact is less than 10%. Once again, um, on ecosystems and human health, their nickel metal hydride batteries, which are the main batteries in all these hybrid vehicles, are 10 times worse than lithium ion batteries. Um, more graphs, you know, it's, it's beating a dead horse at this point that, um, you know, how much worse nickel metal hydride batteries are for the environment, for human health, and um, the overall environment. Um, some more graphs here. It's, it's really not looking good. So um, stop the screen share here and kind of round out the podcast. I know this is probably a long, boring, a little bit of a dredge kind of podcast that you had to drudge through. But um, it's really important that if we're going to use these technologies, that we use technologies that are safe, <laughs> that aren't horrible for the environment. I, I, you know, I gave you all the science. Use that information as you will. Um, I think if we're going to use hybrid vehicles, which I'm all for because I think they're very reliable. I like a lot of the hybrid vehicles that are out there right now. Um, if we're going to use them, then we need to make them as environmentally friendly as possible because that's the stated goal right? So if we're not going to do that, then what are we doing? Are we just virtue signaling and just saying that, hey, look, we made electric vehicles for the sake of making electric vehicles? I don't know. You guys can kind of uh, decide that for yourselves. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one. I hope it was informative. Uh, I know it's probably a little bit boring and dry compared to maybe the usual interview or um, other podcasts, but um, this information needs to be put out there and uh, you know, once again, if we're going to advocate for the environment and for the overall health of the planet, that we need to do that in the best way possible. And I think that we need to also consider human flourishing in that. And if we're using batteries that are bad for the environment and bad for our overall health and advocating for energy sources that aren't reliable, then we have a lot less human flourishing, which allows um, people to do, they're preoccupied with overall survival and quality of life rather than just doing things that make, you know, investing, working, or doing other things that can produce more human flourishing. Um, so like I said, I hope this is um, informative. I hope everybody enjoyed, regardless of how dry and boring it is to listen to me read study after study after study. Um, but hopefully you came away with something. And if you guys like me doing these kind of shows, just let me know, shoot me a message. And if you have any questions about this kind of stuff, I'll do what I can to help you out. But um, until next time, everybody, take care. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.